Let's pray. Father, we, we are here because you have sent your Son. Son, we are here because you have redeemed a people for yourself. Spirit, we are here because you empower this people and dwell amongst that people. That's why we're here. And so, Lord, help us as we come to your word. Help us to not be merely hearers but doers. Help us expose to us where we are apathetic, O Lord God, where we just don't care and where we need to repent and change and act dependent on you. Just bless this morning, bless this time um, as we come to Matthew. Help me to be clear, and may we all hear your words, Lord Jesus, and live by them. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, if you, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, Matthew 22, uh, verses 1 through 14, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And when you find your place, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able to. Um, we stand because we know when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand out of respect. Matthew 22, verse 1. And, Jesus, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the, main, into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to take a look, to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I want to ask, start by asking a question this morning. What are the most dangerous threats to Christianity? What are the most dangerous threats to Christianity? And you might have some answers. You probably do have some answers that pop right into your head. Maybe you think of atheism. Atheism, that uh, there's no God whatsoever. We just all came about by chance. We've evolved uh, into who we are, and religion is just a crutch. It's an opioid for the people, and so... Uh, you see a rising tide of atheism, and along with that, maybe skepticism. Skepticism about, uh, maybe it's not even atheism, but just like, well, I don't know. Is the Bible actually um, accurate? Is it reliable? Is it true? And so there's skepticism. There's increasing skepticism in our culture. Or maybe you think, well, it's Islam. It's Islam. We see a rising tide of Islam, even militant Islam across the globe, and uh, certainly that's going to snuff out Christianity. That's a part of its ultimate goal, Maybe you think that's, that's one of the key threats. 
or along with that secularism. Uh, just that man is the measure of all things. Um, kind of goes along with the atheistic outlook. Uh, we are, uh, it's, it's all about the, um, who we are as a community. It's all about who we are as a state. It's who we are as a nation. We don't have to worry about God. Or maybe you immediately think of the LGBTQ plus movement, the transgender movement, which is making inroads into our culture. That's threatening um, Christian communities, Christian, individual Christians and Christian communities. All those have their place. I think those are all, we could argue, are threats uh, to Christianity. Not final threats, because it is Jesus who is building his church. But I would like to argue that there's maybe a threat that we don't normally think about that is devastating to Christianity, and that is the threat of apathy. Apathy. What is apathy? Apathy is just not so much uh, necessary. It doesn't necessarily start with um, antipathy, the idea of violence and opposition. Apathy is just, I just don't care. That's apathy. You know, we often think of threats in terms of violence and persecution, but if you look historically at the church, normally, not always, but normally when there is persecution, active opposition and threat to the church, the church grows. It grows in purity, and it grows in numbers. But it's the times when the church is at peace, when there are no threats, and people get lazy, Christians get lazy, and there's developing apathy and indifference, that Satan uses apathy to undercut the vitality of the church. And I think we see that very much so in our day, in America in particular. But it's very much true of Jesus' day as well. If you think about the generation of Jesus and John the Baptist, they've already talked about that generation, that evil and adulterous generation. And of course, there were those who followed Jesus around. They loved to come. The crowds loved to come for the miracles, the healings. But beyond that, it's like, wow, this guy's awesome. It's cool to hang around with him, but a lot of them just didn't care. They just didn't care. And so, even as we enter this text this morning, one of the key facets of it is Jesus speaking to his generation, especially the leadership, but the generation at large, about apathy. So let's review a little bit before we head into this text and we see that. Uh, this is a parable. It is a parable that is a third in a sequence of three parables, if you will notice in your text. In chapter 21, we had the parable of the, the two children that the father says, go work in my vineyard. And we had the one that said, yeah, I'm, gonna, uh, uh, I'm not going to go. Uh, uh, and, but the later he does. And then the second says, I'll go, but then he doesn't. Um, and then we had the, the parable after that. The last parable we looked at was the parable of the wicked tenants in the vineyard. In that issue there. And now we have a third parable. And what's amazing about all these parables is they work together. They work together. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, but there is a chronological progression in these parables. If we were to go back to the parable of the two children that the father sends into the vineyard, uh, Jesus, as he applies it, he's saying... Uh, you guys didn't respond. You didn't believe John. You didn't believe his message. Talking to the leaders, the chief priests and the elders of the people, but then also the, the nation at large, that generation at large. 
But then the next, so that, that first parable kind of stops with John. The next parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, we have the servants who represent the prophets um, uh, going to these tenants of the vineyard to gather fruit, and these tenants want to own the vineyard. They don't want to merely rent. But then what happens? The father, the, the master in the parable sends his son, and the son is rejected and killed. And we understood that that parable represents that the, the tenants, the chief priests, the elders of the people, the people leading Israel uh, are, have rejected and are going to reject the son and kill him. That's in play here. And even Jesus adds on this addendum, though, of Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's going to be resurrected. But so then we see a progression. We see a progression from John to Jesus and his death and resurrection. And in this parable we're going to look at today in the wedding feast, it goes farther. Indeed, it does talk about messengers being sent out, much like, and you will see a great deal of parallels with, between this parable and the parable of the wicked tenants. But then we will see that this parable stretches on from Jesus' day into the eschaton, the last times, the final times. And so there's interesting that there's this chronological progression. They work together. And what's really a lot of what Jesus is doing here, remember he's speaking to, in all three of these parables, he's primarily speaking to the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leaders of Israel. He's also speaking to the nation at large, but he's there, the, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leadership, is his primary address, his primary audience. And, uh, but uh, as he talks through each of these parables, there, he's talking about the same reality, but from different angles. So for example, the parable of the two children, Jesus really addressed to these leaders of Israel, uh, you're like the child that says, yeah, I'm going to go. You sound good on the outside, but you actually don't do the will of the father. Because if you did, you would actually repent, listen to John the Baptist. And so that was the first thing he addressed. And then in the parable of the vineyard, um, what happens there is he addresses, Jesus addresses, you're going you're gonna, to, uh, you've seized and killed the messengers of the Lord. You can think of John as the most recent example, even though Herod ultimately did, did that, but they weren't listening. And then you're going to reject the son and the kingdom's going to be taken away from you and given to a people. And we argued there, that's the church who's going to produce its fruits. That's going to be a new tenancy. But you're st he's still addressing the same leadership. And he's going to do the same thing in the parable of the wedding feast. And he's going, in the parable of the wedding feast, he's going to challenge the apathy of this leadership, the apathy of the people. And also he's going to address the issue of what does it mean to be God's chosen, God's elect. He's going to address that as well. So with that backdrop in mind we are ready for the big idea of this text, which is this. What Matthew would say to his original audience and what's there for us is this. Respond wholeheartedly to the kingdom invitation since the chosen are few. Respond wholeheartedly to the kingdom invitation because the chosen are few. And we're going to look at this in three sections in this text this morning. It's one parable, so it's one unit, but we're going to kind of take it in stages. And the first stage we're going to look at is in verses 1 through 7. And here's what you need to take away from verses 1 through 7. Abandon apathy. The Father will destroy you. Abandon apathy. 
the Father will destroy you. Look at verse 1. And Jesus responding again spoke in parables to them. Now, let's understand what is happening here. You remember in chapter 21 how it ended. Look it back up just briefly at verses 45 and 46, how he, Jesus has just told, told this parable of the wicked tenants. But then we get a response from the leadership. We get a response from the leadership. Uh, tw- 21 verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So the, the, the Pharisees, the, not just the Pharisees, the chief priests, those in charge of the temple complex, the elders of the people, which would have overlapped greatly with the Pharisees, they all understand, oh, he's speaking to us. And their response is one of, we want to arrest this guy. He's threatening our authority. We want to get rid of him. And then we get to 22 verse 1, where Jesus is reintroduced, but he's responding. Well, what is he responding to? He's responding to what he knows the chief priests and the elders of the people are doing. They're they're seeking to arrest him. Jesus understands that. So he's going to tell them another parable in response to their attitude. He's going to tell them another parable in response to their attitude. So uh, Jesus responding again, spoke in parables to them. Again, who's the them? The them is the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leadership. And what's he going to say? Saying, the kingdom of the heavens was made like. And so what Jesus is about to do, and we've seen this multiple times in Matthew already, is Jesus is going to talk about how God has structured the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? We've seen this throughout Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is the king, kingdom authorized by heaven and eventually coming down from heaven to earth. It's the same kingdom program that God has had from Genesis 1 and will be culminated in Revelation 22. The idea of God has a chosen king like Adam or like David to rule over the whole world on behalf of heaven. So that's what we're talking about here. And as Jesus tells parables, he gives different facets, different aspects of what this kingdom is like. And so he's going to tell and talk about a situation that describes at least one facet of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is, has, uh, was made like a man, a king who made a wedding feast for his son. Now, um, really the idea here is making a wedding feast. The focal point of what is happening in this parable, as we will see, is the food. It's the feast itself. But you have to understand in a first generation, or first century Jewish context, that's what you did at a wedding. You go to a wedding uh, you're going to have food. Uh, the, the feast might start in the morning or in the afternoon, and the feast might go on for days. But here, this is not just any feast. This is the f- wedding feast for a king and for his son. Now, already, your mind should be thinking, hey, we've heard about a son recently in a recent parable. As we walk through this parable, you should be drawing parallels to the parable of the tenants. So I have this king, and he's going to give a wedding feast for his son. What happens? Verse 3, and he sent his slaves to call or to summon those who had been invited to come into the wedding feast. 
So this is the idea. It's very much the same in your day. I don't know if you've put on a wedding before or been involved in a wedding. What do you do? You send out, well, you might send out first, save the dates, right? But then eventually you send out an invitation. You send out an invitation. And what is on that invitation? An RSVP, isn't it? An RSVP. And why do you have the RSVP? Well, if you're going to have a dinner at a wedding, that costs a lot of money. And you got to figure out like seating arrangements and all that. So you ask for an RSVP. Same thing's going on here. Obviously, first century context, but the idea is, especially with the king, he invites his officials, uh, the people that are invited to the wedding, they get an invitation, you know, months ahead of time. And the understanding is, especially since this is the king talking to his subjects, uh, you're going to give me an RSVP. And so it's understood there that, okay, these folks that, have, uh, that are being summoned, so there's the initial invitation, and then there's the summons. And the idea was the summons was the day of. All right, let's send out some slaves, and let's go ahead and communicate to the people who have already responded. They've already RSVP'd. They've already been invited. And now just go ahead and summon them and bring them to the event. That's the picture of what's going on. So you need to understand that these folks who have been invited, they've already been invited, it's understood that they've RSVP'd. The uh, food has been prepared for them, as we will see as we go, for them. And all that's happening here is that the slaves are coming to gather them and say, all right, come to the event. It's time. It's time. And notice their response, verse 3. And they did not want to come. That's literally what this means. They didn't want to come. They were not willing to come. So here we see the motivation. This is, this is extremely irregular and surprising on multiple levels. One, if it was just a standard wedding uh, and you got the RSVPs and you're going to you know, bring these guys in, uh, um, and then the day of, and notice who, who's saying they don't want to come? All of them. Everyone who had an invitation doesn't want to come. Well, that would be extremely dishonoring to the host in normal circumstances. But what's even more here, we have a king. This is a royal wedding with a royal feast. And these folks are saying, yeah, you you know, uh, I just don't want to come. Maybe you've tried to get out of a day of event that you said yes to before, right? But this is everyone. Wholesale, no, we don't really want to come. And even more than that, it's surprising because what kind of event is this? This is a feast. This is a royal feast. This is like music and sights and good food. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And they're like, yeah, we don't really want to come. So this is insulting. It is deeply insulting to the king, who's the host. It's deeply insulting to the son, whom the celebration is for. So what happens? Verse 4. Again, he sent other slaves. Now, that language should sound really familiar because that's what happened in the parable of the wicked tenants. In fact, it's the exact same phrase that's used in 2136. So we see a parallel of what's going on with the last parable and this parable to an extent. So, you know, the king would have been within his rights to be, you know, angry as we see him become later and deal harshly with these subjects of his. But instead, what does he do? Again, he sent other slaves, and he addresses the same group of invitees again. He says, uh, he, he sent them again, saying, Speak to those who have been invited. Behold, 
my breakfast I have prepared. Now, this meal that's being talked about here, it's using the term for breakfast. So this is like we're supposed to think about early on in the day. This is like morning, uh, wedding breakfast. This is like wedding breakfast, okay? Behold, my breakfast I prepared, having uh, slaughtered my bulls and my fattened calves, and all things are prepared. The feast is ready. We've done all this work, getting all this food ready. And then what does he say? He says, come to the wedding feast. Now, that's an invitation, right? Because it's a wedding feast. Like, come. This is great. What are you guys waiting for? But who's speaking? It's the king through his servants. Come. This is a summons. This isn't just an idea. This is, come on. It's a command to have joy. (laughs) It's a command to have joy. That's the idea here. Now, remember, this is the same group. This is the same group of invitees that was already spoken of. In verses 5 and 6, we see this same group. Now, before, they just said, we don't want to come. Now, imagine, put yourself in those shoes. Again, if you've ever been involved in a wedding or hosted a wedding, imagine this. Everything's ready. You've talked to the caterer. Like, everything's ready to go. (laughs) And then no one shows up. Day of. All that food's going to waste. And not only that, like, it's so insulting. It is so insulting, even in our culture, let alone an honor-shame culture, like that. Okay? So the call is, yeah, come, come have joy with the king and with his son. Verse 5 and 6. So the same group now divides into two groups. There's one group in verse 6, and a second group in verse, uh, one group in verse 5, and a second group in verse 6. And so this whole group of invitees who didn't want to come in the first place now divides into two groups. Those who were unconcerned, that's the word. They're unconcerned. The first group is unconcerned. First group is unconcerned, they depart. So the imagery is, as we find out here in a second, this is one city. Uh, This is one city. So in a city, you know, you call people, if you're a messenger of the king, you call people to the central square. So here you, here you, here you, I have a message from the king. So everyone's gathered together in the central square, at least of those who have been invited. And uh, it's the same group that have been addressed before, different slaves, but same group that has been invited. And the first group is unconcerned. They just don't care. And they leave. They leave the square. They start filtering off. Oh, we heard this before. And notice where are they going? One goes to his own field, and another to his own business. So what they are communicating is that, uh, and this is the heart of apathy. What is the heart of apathy? When you just say, I just don't care, it's selfishness. It's self-rule. It's self-determination, saying, you know, my, what I think is important is important, and what you're inviting me to is just not that important. And you see that because where do these folks go to? They go to their own things. You know, they go work in the field. They go about some other business opportunities. They just don't care about the king. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't seem too bad, but like, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the king. The communication that you don't care isn't neutral. It's rebellion. It's rebellion to the summons. And we see that, you know, everyone in this first group was, was um, they were all unconcerned in verse 3 to begin with. We saw that. They were all, we, we just don't care. We don't want to come. But 
here we see it break into two groups, and the first group maintains their apathy. They just don't care, so we're just going to go off. But what happens when apathy gets irritated? Hey, uh, just leave me alone. Well, that's where we get the second group, verse 6. The rest, seizing his slaves, demeaned them. It's not just that they mistreated them, they humiliated them. And they killed them. What's the difference between apathy and antipathy? Antipathy means you're, you're violent, you're in active opposition. What is the difference between act, um, apathy and antipathy? Nothing. The heart is the same. It's just that antipathy has been irritated to the point of, all right, my self-determination has been threatened enough, now I'm going to act. Apathy will be shaken into action and to violence if that heart of self-determination and self-rule is maintained. And we see it here. This group of invitees, they were unconcerned to begin with. One group kind of just basically remains unconcerned, and the second group actually goes a step farther and says, I don't care about your stupid king and his stupid son and his stupid wedding. I got my own business to take care of. And so they humiliate and kill the messengers. Well, how's the king going to respond? Verse 7. Now the king was angry. Rightfully so. He has been humiliated by his subjects, dishonored. He's angry. So what's the king going to do? After sending his troops, uh, the king has the military at his command. This is a monarchy. He has the military at his direct command. After sending his troops, he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So here's where we get the information. Oh, they were all collected in one city. So both the, everyone was. All the invitees, the apathetic ones and the murderous ones, they're all together in the city, but they're all share in the same fate. Whether they were apathetic and they just went off to their own field or whether they murdered, they share in the fate of destruction and the city being burned. Now, Jesus isn't done with the parable, but at this point, we can, we can go ahead and relate. What is Jesus speaking about? How does this parable relate to the real world? Because remember, every parable that Jesus tells, it has correspondence to what happens in reality. Well, a couple things are easy off the bat. The king represents the father, God the father. The son represents the son, God the son, just like it happened in the last parable. What about the um, invitation? The invitation. What is the invitation? The invitation is come to the wedding feast. Well, the imagery of the wedding feast was well-known imagery at that time. In fact, it started way back in Isaiah 25. You can look there at Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. You don't have to turn there, but you can look back there if you want later. But this is the idea that at the end of things, when God establishes his kingdom through his chosen king, through his Messiah over the whole world, and everything is at peace and everything is reconciled, there's going to be a great feast. And it's called the Messianic Feast. And so this invitation here is the invitation to things are ready. Come to the feast. Come to the Messianic feast. Well, what does that correspond to? Well, what has John the Baptist and Jesus 
and his Jesus' disciples' message been? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's the invitation. Because that invitation means that uh, it's not here yet. The feast isn't here yet. The end isn't here yet. The kingdom's not here yet, but it's near. It's drawn near. It's right at the door knocking. And that was the message of John and Jesus and Jesus' disciples to that generation of Israel to say, it's ready. It's here. All you guys need to do is come and respond. It's all ready. But what has happened? We've seen it since Matthew 11 and 12, particularly we've seen it, even before then to an extent. But up to this point, yes, there's the crowds that are interested. And yes, some have turned a corner and acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. But the leaders, the chief priests and the leaders of the people, the Jerusalem crowds, they just don't care. Or worse, their self-rule, which is the source of their apathy, is now turning to antipathy. They're ready to arrest. We already saw it in 2145 and 46. They're ready to arrest and will soon, in a couple days, be ready to execute Jesus. So given that identification of the call to the wedding feast is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's near. It could come right now. Who are the invitees? The invitees are that generation of Israel and the leadership. Who are the messengers? Who are the slaves that go out? Well, it seems like actually it's referring to John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples in particular, because those are the ones that are calling in that generation of Israel to respond. And they just don't care. They won't come as a whole. There were some, obviously Jesus has disciples. He does, right? There are some who have responded, but as a whole, the nation has not. And the king is insulted. The father is insulted and the son is insulted. So what is the father going to do? He's angry. Just pause here for a second. God gets angry. Do you think about that? You know, we talk about God is love, and God is love. But that's not in opposition to his anger. And in fact, because he loves, he gets angry. You understand that? That because you love something, you're going to get angry at those who demean what you love? The Father loves the Son eternally. And those who demean the Son, the Father gets angry at And that is exactly what is going on here. That is what this wicked and adulterous generation of Israel has done in the book of Matthew, what Jesus is addressing, that John has addressed. What's the father going to do? Well, he's going to send his military, his troops, and he's going to burn their city. Well, how did that work out? AD 70. The Romans, under the command of their generals, came and crushed Jerusalem. Now you might say, well, who, who was commanding those troops? Well, of course, the Roman generals and ultimately the, you know, the Caesar who's back in Rome, although there was a turmoil at that time. But who has control of all armies to do their bidding at his proper time? We see this in the Old Testament and the New. It is the Father. 
He has control over all armies and militaries, and he uses them for his purposes in his time. And that is what he did in AD 70 in his anger against that wicked and adulterous generation of Israel. And why? Here's the key part. Why? Apathy. They just don't want to come. How do we apply this? I mean, you're already thinking about some of this, but let's do it. First, what do we take away from this? Even before we go further into the parable, the call of the message of the kingdom, the call of the gospel, is a call to unspeakable joy. It's a wedding feast, folks. It's not just turn or burn. The Father will destroy you in eternal hell, which is true if you don't repent. But that's like the thing that the Father and the Son and the Spirit use to shake you by the shoulder and say, wake up, you're in danger. But whoa, whoa, whoa. I want you to experience my joy. That's the first thing you need to see that the call of the kingdom is the call to enjoy the triune God on a renewed heavens and a renewed earth forever. Look at Revelation 19, 20, and 20, well, Revelation 19 through 22, the last section, the close of the story. It's joy, enjoying God. We are designed to enjoy in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth with feasting and being in bodies, resurrected, purified bodies. It is a call to joy. But if that just, you just don't care? If apathy and unconcern, it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. You can use all this religious language and whatever. I just don't care. Friends, that attitude deserves the Father's destruction because it is deeply insulting. I think it's John Piper that says, God threatens horrible things if we will not be happy. He threatens horrible things if we will not be happy, and we see it here in this text. I've said it already, apathy at its heart is selfishness and self-rule. It's saying this, my concerns are more important than what God is doing in the world. That's what apathy is. My concerns, my business are more important than what God is doing in the world. And it's the same heart behind antipathy, violence. Apathy leads to antipathy when God's call is felt to threaten your self-determination. You might think, I'm not a violent person. Oh, just wait. If your self-rule is threatened, you will do whatever it takes to protect it if you have not surrendered. And the question to all of us this morning is, where does apathy lurk in your heart? Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in any of this stuff, you're still in that category. You may hear this stuff, maybe you're a little bit interested, but it's like, you know, I, someone's dragging me here each week and I do it to appease them, but, you know, I just, this religious language stuff, the sun, the spirit, the ah, whatever, I just don't care. Well, friend, you are in grave danger, the gravest danger you could possibly be in because you are insulting the Father and the Son just like if you weren't showing up to a wedding feast. But even the believer, which by God's grace, I think is the majority of you, I hope so, this morning, that we can struggle with apathy as well because what? 
well, the Son has saved me. I believe in the Son. He has saved me. Um, but, you know, I'm just kind of coasting until Jesus comes back. I'm just kind of coasting. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I don't want to worry too much about, you know, evangelism. I don't want to worry too much about the church. I, I just kind of want to make it. That also is apathy, and you have no security if that is your attitude, because that also is insulting the Son's sacrifice. And so here's a diagnostic question for you. Where do you how do you uncover apathy? How do you uncover it? Well, here's a question. Where do you find your own interests and business and the things of this world? Where do they capture your excitement more than God's kingdom and following Christ and partnering with the church? Where does that happen? Maybe it's sports. I've known many professing Christians like, oh, I'm going to stay home and watch the game. You're going to watch a temporal football game rather than God, gather with God's people where the Spirit of God dwells, where the manifestation of the future kingdom is happening on a Sunday morning? Or maybe you're like, yeah, I just need another couple hours of sleep. I'm just not, you know, maybe I'm a little late, doesn't really matter. Well, that's apathy. It just signals you just don't care. Or maybe it's some other interest. Maybe it's video games, you know. Um, I'm staying up late playing video games on Saturday night, um, you know, so that I'm just a, a, I'm groggy in the morning. Or maybe it's videos, or maybe it's vacation, maybe it's business, whatever it is. But what is stealing your affections? What is more important? What feels more important than God and what he is doing in this world? And that's where apathy dwells. And you need to abandon it because you are threatened by an insulted and angry God unless you repent from those attitudes. Apathy deserves the Father's destruction because it shames him and his son. But that's not the end of the parable. That's not the end of the parable. We get another section here in verses 8 through 10, and the main idea of this section is this. Respond to the invitation no matter who you are. Respond to the invitation, no matter who you are. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, this is the king talking to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready. Remember what he said, the food's all there, it's all ready. It's, we're ready to go, but we got no one. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. How does he know they weren't worthy? What is he saying? He's saying they weren't worthy of the invitation to begin with. Why? Because in their response to that invitation, they showed their unworthiness. They showed their unworthiness. Those invited were not worthy. So what are we going to do? Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads. And the, the idea of this is, is that uh, you know, in the, the city, you've got kind of your city walls or city boundary, and you've got these like main thoroughfares leading, leaving the city. Um, that's the idea of where they're going. So they're going to the kind of these exits from the city. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now think about who the king is likely to have invited to begin with. So the first round of invitees, who did he invite? Well, he's a king, so he probably invited great officials, persons of state, all of this. But now he's saying, go out to the common people. Go out to the exits of the city and anyone you find, invite. Same invitation to the wedding feast. 
And what happens? Verse 10, it's successful. Those slaves went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. What's the result? So the wedding hall was filled with guests, which is what the father wants. He wants to share his joy. The king wants to share his joy in the wedding. So he's gathering these you know, and the description is amazing. We're not looking for qualifications here. Just go out and get it almost like get warm bodies, right? Get warm bodies and bring them in. The bad and the good. Now, I think the bad and the good there, that's from a societal standpoint. We say this all the time, right? That person's a bad person. That person's a good person. Drug dealer, bad person. A successful businessman, good person. Right? We do this, right? So from a societal standpoint, we have the good people and the bad people. And, and uh, the king's like, doesn't matter who you find, just bring them in. They get the same invitation and they can all enjoy the wedding feast. In the context of Matthew, you know, as we think about what does this correspond to, well, Jesus has just said in the parable of the two, two kids that the, the father sent into the field, he said that, the sinners, uh, excuse me, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. They're, go, they're headed that direction ahead of you, scribes and Pharisees, chief priests and elders of the people. The scum of society. Because responding, listening to the invitation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is, is what you need. There are no qualifications to respond to the gospel. The only qualification is that you are a sinner. And that means everyone. We are all sinners. We might say, well, this person's bad and this person's good in a horizontal sense. But the reality is we are all rebels. We all start off as rebels against the king. And there are no qualifications. The the call is come. You don't have to be good enough. And in fact, you think you're going to be good enough. You're never going to come. That's, that's the, what the song Come Ye Sinners talks about. The qualification is to recognize you have sinned against a holy and good king and you deserve his wrath, but you can come no matter who you are. So what's the application here for us? Well, the call is Respond. Respond to the call of repentance and faith no matter who you are. The Father desires his feast to be filled, and no matter whether you're good or evil, he extends the invitation to you. Whether you're good or bad, whether you're a drug dealer or a prostitute, or whether you're the most straight-laced person in society you could think of, doesn't matter. You need to respond to the call, and you can come to the wedding feast. Whether one is good or evil in relation to others, all are evil and deserves the Father's internal punishment. And here's the good news, as we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, through his righteous life, perfectly righteous, through his death on behalf of his people, and his resurrection secures you a spot at the feast if you will repent and entrust yourself to him. You can come as long as you lay down arms. You can come as long as you surrender. What have we talked about? What is repentance? Repentance is first and foremost an allegiance change. It's a change of disposition. It's not just doing stuff, although we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, It's not just doing good things. It is 
an allegiance change, turning your allegiance from sin and self and apathy and things of this nature and saying, I, I, I deserve God's judgment. I deserve his justice eternally. But I also fully entrust myself to Jesus Christ, the one who has borne all of the sins of his people on that cross, atoning for their iniquity. And not only that, living the perfect, lived in flesh, human righteousness that I cannot live. And so I'm counted righteous in Jesus. If you entrust yourself fully to him, you lay down arms in repentance and you entrust yourself, you swear allegiance to him, you have a spot at the feast. You have a spot at the feast because of who he is. He qualifies you. Christ qualifies you for the feast, for the kingdom. But there's also another application for this. For those of us who are in Christ, we become these slaves, these servants who do what? Extend that invitation indiscriminately to all whom we find, both bad and good, to do what? Come to the wedding feast. Come to the kingdom, which tells us what? We cannot prejudge and shortchange the power of the gospel. Sometimes we look at people and we say, it's not possible. That person cannot respond to the gospel. They're just too far gone. Or, um, you, you know, oh, of course this person's going to respond. Right? We prejudge people and we're not called to do that. We are called to proclaim the message, come to the wedding feast indiscriminately to good and to bad but there's still a little bit more to the story. Yes, you need to respond to the invitation no matter who you are, but in verses 11 through 14, you need to respond repentantly. Righteous living is required. Now, let's walk through this because this point is intention with what we just saw and intentionally so. So we'll talk about that. Look at verses 11 through 14. So the, the wedding hall is filled, the, the, the wedding feast is filled with guests. This is what he wanted. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, now this is what would happen, right? The, the king has gathered this throng through his generosity. And what, the king's going to come in and see what his generosity has done. And he is honored thereby, right? The king is honored by seeing and looking, yeah, by, uh, by my effort, by my invitation, I've brought in all of these people. So he receives honor from that. So the king came, comes in and looks at the guests. He saw there a man who had no wedding garments. Now, I think we get this too, uh, but it's definitely true in that time. When you show up to a wedding, you show up in uh, your best, right? Or at least the dress code kind of of the wedding. Different weddings have different dress codes. But if it's a royal wedding, uh, yeah, you're going to show up in your best. Why? Why aren't you going to show up in your you know, your, your Levi's with the hole in the jeans and, you know, your, your greasy shirt and, you know, your work clothes your, or your everyday clothes. Why aren't you going to show up like that? Well, because when you come, you are participating in the celebration of the wedding. And how you dress shows how you honor the people who are getting married and even the, the family of those people who are getting married. You're showing honor by what you wear. 
So this is typical in that day as well, right? So you have your average everyday work clothes, but people in general had another pair of clothes that they would use to like go to synagogue and stuff like that, like our Sunday's best. We understand that. Um, and so it's not that this guy uh, doesn't have this stuff available, okay? Sometimes this is interpreted as, well, the king would normally dish out royal clothing. There's no evidence for that, really. The idea is, oh, I'm invited to this wedding. I better run home and get changed to my best because of what kind of a wedding this is. So this king sees this guy, no wedding garments. Verse 12, king says to him, friend, which is kind of the polite way of talking to someone you don't know, um, you know, um, and maybe someone who's irritating you, friend, um, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, notice what the king's questions presupposes. This guy shouldn't have been able to get in without a wedding garment. This is surprising. He snuck in. We also know who these people are. They're called wedding crashers, right? They, they come in and they want the food, like royal wedding, uh, lots of people. Oh, I can sneak in. It's like sneaking into Costco when you don't have the membership, right? It's that kind of idea. Um, you're... you're you're, this is a wedding crasher. He wants the food, but he didn't show up with the garment. Why not? Because his goal is not to celebrate with the king and the son. The goal is to get free food. Actually, this is another instance of apathy, isn't it? Because apathy says, I just don't care. If you cared about the wedding, you would get the right clothes, beg, borrow, hopefully not steal, um, to show up at the king's wedding. And the king expects that. And the king says, it's a prerequisite to be in here. you got to have a wedding garment. So he asks this question, and the guy is speechless. Like, he's put to silence. He has nothing to say. He has no justification. Because he's a wedding crasher. Verse 12, 13, what's the king going to do? Then the king said to the attendants. These aren't the slaves. These are a different word, actually. So these are like the butlers and the footmen and the guys around. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Now pause right there. Remember I said that the wedding feast probably was supposed to start in the morning or maybe in the afternoon. Well, everything's been delayed because of the whole round of invitations and a military campaign in the middle. And, uh, you know, it's nighttime now, okay? Uh, it's nighttime. It's dark outside. And you can imagine the king's palace lit up with beautiful lights warm lights, and it's dark outside. There's no electric street lamps. And he gets thrown outside, excluded, because he doesn't have the right clothing. And then Jesus, from that, seamlessly switches to application of what does this parable represent? Because he says this, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we've seen that phrase many, many times in Matthew, and in fact, I want to walk you through them briefly to understand what is Jesus talking about here. Go back to Matthew 8. You can follow along or you can just listen. I'm going to flip through several texts pretty quickly. Matthew 8, Jesus heals the servant of the centurion, the Roman centurion. Roman centurions de demonstrated great faith. And here's what he says. Actually, it's very, very, very similar imagery uh, to what we see in our text. Romans 8.10, or excuse me, not Romans, um, Roman centurion, but uh, Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
While what? While the sons of the kingdom, those who have the natural rights to be the citizens of the kingdom, i.e. Israel, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Turn to Matthew 13, next instance of this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, so we understand what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Matthew 13, a parable of the uh, the tares, parable of the darnel. And Jesus is interpreting it in Matthew 13, 41 and 42. And listen to what he says. The son of man, who's Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what do we see? This is the description of final judgment. It is the description of the separation of the evil and the righteous and the place where the wicked go. What we call hell is this place where Jesus describes it as outer darkness, fiery furnace, Look at verse 50 through, uh, look at verse 49 and 50 in the same chapter of, um, of Matthew 13. S- similar, similar context. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Skip over to Matthew 24, a little ahead of where we're at in Matthew. You see this phrase again. In a parable context, you've got a wicked slave. Uh, and what does the master do? Verse 51 in chapter 24. He'll cut the slave into pieces and put him in with the hypocrites, the play actors, those who have an external show but no reality. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 25:30, last instance, similar context, again, a worthless servant says this, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is weeping and gnashing of teeth? It is emotional and physical agony. That's why you're weeping and you're gnashing your teeth. And what Jesus is describing, Jesus is not afraid to talk about hell. Well, we are afraid to talk about hell. Jesus is not. And he's bringing it up in this parable. The term in Hebrew is Gehenna, but it's normally translated hell. Uh, we can look even in Matthew. It, uh, hell is described as fire that is unquenchable and internal. Matthew 3.12 and, and chapter 25.41. Hell is described as destruction. Chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, Jesus says two times, it's better to intentionally maim yourself than to go there. Matthew 5.29 through 30 and 18.8 through 9. It is described as a place of eternal punishment, active punishment. In Matthew 25, 46, it is inhabited by the cursed, the devil, and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. What is hell? Hell is a place of internal, unquenchable fire, like that of a furnace, which is used for everlasting punishment of the devil, his angels, and the unrepentant wicked, who are described as cursed of God. The wicked include play actors, hypocrites, lawbreakers, and many who had all the natural opportunities to enter into the kingdom and life and just didn't respond. 
Though it is a place of eternal fire, it is also described as outermost darkness. The result is that those in this final place of judgment are said to be weeping and gnashing their teeth in agony. Friends, that is hell. Jesus says it. Jesus is in the know. He knows better than anyone what hell is like. And he's saying, this guy went there. Now, we were like, well, wait, wait, whoa, 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 okay. Why? Because I thought these people were gathered whether they're good or they're evil. Isn't that what happened? So why is this guy without the wedding garment thrown? What does the wedding garment represent? Isn't that the million-dollar question? Well, as we've seen throughout Matthew, there's a category for those who profess Jesus, even as Lord, but do not live righteously. We've talked many times about how the call of the gospel is entrust yourself to Jesus and you will be counted righteous in the Father's eyes. The Son gives you righteous standing before the Father. But what the Son also does is he changes your whole life. He changes your whole living. Such that the Son in Matthew 5 Matthew 5, 20, in talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says shocking things. Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says this. For I tell you, now, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples, who, those who have made a profession and are following him. Here's what he tells to his disciples in Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, that's righteous living, righteous deeds, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in Matthew 7, in his conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, in 7.21, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now imagine, isn't that what you're supposed to say as a Christian? Jesus, you're Lord? Well, yeah, but that's not enough, because look at what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Righteous living. And you see how this is intention. The invitation is free. You can respond and you can be brought into the kingdom, but you have to be prepared for the Son and the Spirit to change your whole life. And if there's no change, you got no clothes. And you're not real. That's the guy without the wedding clothes. You can see the same reality in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, which is also describing the Messianic feast. And it describes how the church was granted to clothe itself with garments white and pure. And it's very, very, very clear, couldn't be clear, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. Which is why Jesus then says what he says in verse 14 of chapter 22. He ends... And says this, for many are called. Now we understand what that means. There were many called in the parable. There were many invited to the wedding feast. But what does he say? But few are chosen. Now this is the word that we get our word elect from. And we need to understand this term against the backdrop that Jesus' audience would have heard it. Jesus is talking to a first century Jewish audience. And they would have understood that, yeah, God chooses people and he chooses individuals to be his. So he chose Israel in the Old Testament to be his people, and he also chose individuals to save them to be his people. There ain't no salvation apart from God's choosing. 
But what Jesus' audience thinks is just because they're Israelites, just because they're offspring of Abraham, they're good. We know this is true because in chapter 3, John says, don't just say to me, and he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's saying, don't just think you can say, uh, we're children of Abraham, so we're good, and we don't need repentance. Because that's what they think the elect are. They already have placed themselves in the elect, the chosen of God. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, uh, don't just think because you have heard the truth that you're part of God's chosen. You notice in the parable, the king didn't do any choosing, did he? It was all invitation. But what Jesus is alluding to here is, no, the reality that undergirds responses to the invitation, legitimate responses to the invitation, is God's choosing. How is election, how is God's choosing and favor made known? By your response. Don't mishear me. I did not say, because you responded, God decided to choose you. No. Because you responded, that shows that God already chose you ahead of time. This is the doctrine of unconditional election that we believe here at Faith Bible Church. But why is Jesus speaking of it here? He's shaking the shoulders of those who think they're elect, who think they're in, who think they don't need to respond, and in fact are in total antipathy to Jesus and are about to arrest him and kill him. And Jesus is trying to wake them up and say, many are called, few very few are chosen. So how do we apply this? First, let's talk about that idea of election. You cannot know, none of us in this room cannot know infallibly who the chosen of God are. Not even for myself. You cannot know infallibly who the chosen of God are, but election is demonstrated by new life and pursuit of righteousness. Election is demonstrated by repentance. And so what? Heed the invitation. Come, respond. That's what Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come. He says it here. And then do what? Pursue righteous living and good deeds produced by the Holy Spirit to prove that you, your election, that you are elect and chosen of God. You're like, what? I have to prove I'm elect? That's what, that's what Peter says, Apostle Peter 2 Peter 1. Go to 2 Peter 1. Go to 2 Peter 1. Now, if anyone should know anything about this, it ought to be Peter, right? Spent time with Jesus, heard this very parable being spoken, most likely. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Speaking to Christians. What does he say? Or at least professing Christians. What is 2 Peter 1, verse 3 through 11? Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into what? The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the same reality that Peter is reflecting on. So if you think you can say that you have faith, I believe in Jesus, and coast without any real change in your life, you will be just as embarrassed and condemned as the man without wedding clothes on that day. And you do not want to be that embarrassed. You have an experienced embarrassment like that and suffering and pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth in the eternal fires of God's judgment because you said, yeah, I belong to Jesus, but my life didn't change. And Jesus is designed to change your whole life. Now, you might be here this morning and you're saying, ah, and I have struggled with this question. I have personally struggled with this question. Am I of the elect? Am I of God's chosen? And I felt like I got to decide that question, my elect, uh, so that I can respond to the gospel. You are asking the wrong question because the call is the call. The call is come. If you're worried, well, I need to decide whether I'm the elect first before I respond to the gospel, you've got it backwards. Respond, believe, trust in the Son, and work dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So be encouraged. Heed the call. Come, you can. Dependent on God's grace through the Son and the Spirit. Here's another thing we can take away. Do not think that just because you have heard the call of the gospel, that means you have responded to the call of the gospel. Basically, every week here, I give a call of the gospel and what the gospel is. And so you have heard, and I am innocent of your blood, but don't think just because you've heard it, yet you've responded to it. Nor should you think that right associations like church attendance means that you're elect or chosen of God. That's what Jesus' audience was thinking. We're of Israel, so we're good. No, just because you show up, just because you listen, just because you do all the, 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 the you associate with the right people, that doesn't mean you're called of God. It's the response to the invitation. And I will end on this note, a sober note. As Jesus has shown us from this passage, hell is a real and terrible place where God meets out just eternal punishment. Why is the punishment eternal? Because as we've seen in this parable, the insult is to the king of the universe, the eternal king, the eternally worthy one. You have insulted the eternally worthy one, which means you were worthy of an eternal condemnation and punishment. Hell is a real and terrible place. Jesus is not afraid to talk about it. We must not be afraid to think about it. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to think about hell. That's the thing you don't want to think about, but you need to think about it because as you think about it, I pray that God would drive you to the only way to the feast, the joy, which is through Jesus. But if you're a believer here this morning, even though you have been saved through Jesus Christ, you need to think about hell too. Because it needs to drive you to thanksgiving and purpose because of the salvation you have in Christ and how good it is. And not only should you think about that for yourself and you say, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful. That ought to be true. But then let it drive you 
to extend the king's invitation to all, bad or good, that you encounter this week. Why? For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Oh God, please forgive us for being an apathetic people. Lord, we, we just ask for grace. We ask for your power, Holy Spirit, to first look at the Son and look at the call of the gospel and be amazed and astounded and believe it and respond in repentance and faith. And then to live up to that calling, to live worthy of that calling, dependent utterly on the power of your Spirit, but genuinely pursuing and laboring towards righteousness and good deeds, not to earn our salvation, we could never do it, but to live in light of the salvation you have granted. Lord, help us this week. We we believe that there are people in our community in Hood River, the Dalles, the mid-Columbia region that need the gospel. And we, we believe that there are people you have chosen, and we want to encounter these people to share the gospel and see them converted, that you might receive honor and that your son might receive honor. Let us do that even this week. Lord, I pray if there are any apathetic here, any who just don't care, I pray that you would pin them to the wall and that you would grant them repentance because we want to see them enjoying you for all eternity. To do your work, Holy Spirit, we ask. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.